and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the revelations from the Washington Post that a small group of six Ukrainian operatives blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines, which the United States government blamed on Russia, leading to many journalists, including myself, reporting that the Kremlin was most likely behind the sabotage. Joining us to discuss how Ukraine's military intelligence headed by General Budanov is striking back at Russia as Putin wantonly destroys Ukrainian cities and infrastructure is Michael Weiss, senior correspondent for Yahoo News, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, and broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Then we'll examine whether the merger between the PGA and the Saudi LIV golf tournaments is a way for MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, to pay off Donald Trump after lavishing his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, with billions from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which owns 93% of LIV, with the remaining 7% owned by persons unknown, likely Trump, who MBS clearly wants back in the White House. Joining us is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. She has published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Los Angeles Times, and CNN. Then finally, we'll look into the Supreme Court's shadow docket, where 99% of the decisions take place in unseen, unsigned, and unexplained cases, with many aligning with Republican political priorities. Joining us is Stephen Vladek, who holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is an internationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He has argued over a dozen cases before the United States Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, and has testified before numerous congressional committees. His latest book, a New York Times bestseller, is The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America.
And joining us now is Michael Weiss, who's a senior correspondent for Yahoo News, who's reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, and broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Run Reality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, culture and money and the co-author of the new york times bestseller isis inside the army of terror welcome to background briefing michael weiss happy to be back in well thanks for joining us michael and what do you make of the uh, washington post story that came out on tuesday june the 6th that uh, titled the u.s had intelligence of detailed ukrainian plan to attack nord stream pipeline the cia learned last june via a european spy agency that a six-person team of Ukrainian special operatives, operations forces intended to sabotage the Russia to Germany natural gas project. Quite a bombshell. Um, it, well, yes, although um, the, the idea that Ukrainians uh, are responsible rather than, say, Russia, and, and certainly rather than, say, the United States, which was the Hearst conspiracy theory that I think has been successfully debunked with open source reporting. Um, this has been bombinating in various national security circles for months. Uh, and in Kyiv, uh, it's almost treated as an open secret. Um, I think the, the report is credible. I think it follows on other reporting that outlets such as the New York Times had done that suggests that the U.S. intelligence assessment after the fact also implicates uh, Ukrainian actors. Although one thing that I'm still slightly unsure of or skeptical about is Washington Post says that the the pre-bombing intel suggested that uh, Valery Zaluzhny, who's the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, was the architect or the mastermind, or would, would have been the architect or the mastermind of such an operation, and was doing this uh, off the books, if you like, so not not running it up the flagpole to President Zelensky. Um, information I've gathered over the last few months, albeit not sufficient enough to do my own report, um, suggests that it probably wasn't Zaluzhny who was responsible for putting this all together. And just on the merits alone, um, Zaluzhny has been, is a, is a deeply popular figure in Ukraine. And if you know anything about this presidential administration, particularly Zelensky's inner circle, they don't like the spotlight, spotlight being taken off the president. And for Zaluzhny to do something like this, without a buyer leave from Zelensky would strike me as very foolhardy and reckless on his part. Um, not to say I can entirely rule it out, but look, I mean, the, the scuttlebutt is that uh, a Ukrainian citizen, quote unquote, who is very well resourced and certainly could find, if he or she so chose, um, well-trained military actors, including deep sea divers and people who are familiar with the use of explosive devices, um, financed this operation. And that is the reason that the New York Times, when it reported after the fact, was sort of um, relaying the U.S. intelligence community's assessment that they weren't sure if this was a, a state-sponsored operation or something that was somewhat rogue or freelance. Although you can imagine, Ian, I mean, given the state of Ukraine, that it's fighting an existential war of survival, there's a great deal of, of gray area between what we would consider state-sponsored and, you know, 
kind of individualistic or or non-state. Um, right. But look, I, I'm not surprised by this. Uh, I kind of have been waiting for more information to come out. I mean, if you follow the German press, um, they have all but said that the German authorities who've been investigating the, the bombings uh, think it, it wasn't Russia, it was Ukraine. So not not terribly shocking. Well, it seems like the report came from the BND, didn't it? I mean, Germany's foreign intelligence, according to the Washington Post, it's the 21-year-old airman that leaked all this in- information to this right. little chat group of teenagers that he was impressing. And the Post went to one of the teenagers and actually got the document, which was a CIA document, relaying uh, information that they got from a foreign service, which is, I think, most likely to be right. the BND, right? No, it's not the BND. That's it's not the BND? Oh. No, no. Can you the tell Germans us who it is? The ner- Germans did not know about this in advance. Um, and whether or not the information was shared with them by the Foreign European Service, uh, that I, I, I can't say. I mean, I, I can't really disclose which service it was at the moment, um, but suffice it to say, um, these guys don't, you know, they, they don't wing it. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't run with um, unreliable or non-credible intelligence. Um, and the CIA's response, according to the Washington Post, was, the source of the information was somebody whose reliability they could not um, determine. But that doesn't mean that the European service uh, didn't find the source to be uh, maximally credible. Um, you, know, right. you have to keep in mind, like, you know, European services go to the Americans when not when they've got rumint or, you know, scuttlebutt or sort of idle speculation. They, they go when they've got something more substantive. Right. Uh, and, and they know that when they go, they have to stand it up. Right. Um, because, you know, the Americans are seen as, as, as a big brother in, within NATO and, and the transatlantic community. So, yeah, no, I, look, I, I know a lot of people think that this is too conspiratorial and, you know, some Ukrainians are pushing back on social media saying it's nonsense. It must have been Russia. It must have been Russia. But, you know, look, uh, one of the the, the the kind of leitmotifs of this war I was hearing the same thing about the drone strikes in Moscow, including the one that singed the, the, the dome of the Kremlin, and then these attacks on apartment buildings owned or uh, inhabited by Russian intelligence officers. A lot of people say, well, it must be false flag. It must be the Russians blowing their own stuff up in order to blame it on the United States or the Ukrainians. And I think that actually does a disservice to Ukraine's capability. Um, I mean, I've been talking to Ukrainian military intelligence for, from even before the start of the war. Uh, my relationship with them is, is, is brokered on the fact that I'm writing a book on their Russian counterpart. And so, you know, I've been querying them for the better part of five or six years about how the GRU, Russian military intelligence, flies its trade. And, I mean, these guys had told me several months ago we've recruited Russian partisans who are capable of conducting operations inside Russian Federation territory, uh, these partisans are able to launch drones from within Russia at Russian targets. So the idea that you know drones can't fly from Ukraine to Russia, this is all nonsense. First of all, they can, and secondly, they don't necessarily have to because they can be launched inside Russia. Uh, and you know, blowing up Nord Stream pipeline is is well within Ukraine what Ukraine would consider to be its own strategic remit. I mean, Russia does not use energy and the export of of, of hydrocarbons. Um, simply for uh, economic 
game. They they use it as a as a weapon. It's a, an arm of their defense and foreign policy. So to cripple that or to hobble it in some way is is certainly something that the Ukrainians would have the intention of doing. No, I think you're you're talking about Bananov, and and I think he's <laughs> yes <laughs> the guy who I interviewed. Yeah. About, uh, what, a month and a half ago, yeah. Right, and I think he's been behind all these operations, and the guy is obviously brilliant and very effective. But going back to the BND, I mean, the whole reason why I think the the White House told the press, told everybody, or suggested that it was the Russians all along, and that's been the line that we've all sort of fallen for. I don't know about you, but I've accepted that, which I now regret, of course, and the reasoning was, of course, that they didn't want to upset the German public and have them mad yeah. at Zelensky for his people blowing up the gas pipeline, which means that the German people had to freeze during the winter, right? Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, put put on your um, your your deeply cynical geopolitical skullduggery hat for a moment, if you will. I mean, uh, what happened? Uh, since the Nord Stream pipelines were, were blown up. Uh, the Germans got to yes on sending or allowing to be sent main battle tanks, the Leopard 2s. That was not an easy lift, particularly for the United States State Department and Pentagon, which had been prevailing upon Olaf Scholz to do exactly that. They've been sending enormously sophisticated kit, particularly in the realm of their defense systems, the Iris-T, the Gepard, um, on paper, actually, and, and, and the fact that this isn't more widely known internationally is simply the fault of German strategic communications or public relations. But on paper, I think the Germans um, have, depending on how you calculate it, uh, overtaken the UK for security assistance to Ukraine. And yet, politically, they were seen as a very weak link. Um, you know, they're coming off of, uh, you know, decades of Ostpolitik, um, not neutrality per se, but this idea that you can you can sort of strike a bargain with the Russians, um, you know, um, good relations through trade or commerce or whatever it's called. And Vandal all of a sudden, on the eve of, yeah. yes. And then on the eve of the war you have, or I think actually right after the, the full scale invasion, February 24th, 2022, you have Schultz's famous Zeitenwende speech in the Bundestag, where he says that, you know, now is the time that we have to kind of go 180 degrees from where we have been. So it's, it's been, it's been a slow, well, actually, no, it's been a very quick learning curve, but a painful one. And I think what's what's happened here is there were bits and bobs of credible intelligence, both before and after the fact about who done it on Nord Stream 2. Uh, and the Germans themselves probably, meaning the government, had a, a vested interest not to upset the apple cart by coming out, you know, full throttle and, and blaming the Ukrainians. And I think there is, as I said earlier, a great deal of ambiguity as to, well, can we blame the Ukrainian state for this? Or are there certain vested interests who might not have had an interest in running this by Volodymyr Zelensky? I mean, look, this is I'm going to disclose what the Ukrainians in Kiev have all been saying. So uh, I'm not I'm not owning this as my own reporting and I'm certainly not owning this as established fact. But the scuttlebutt is that Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, is the mysterious financier or architect of this operation. And I've been waiting for somebody in the Western press to realize that the date that Nord Stream 2 blew up, September the 26th, happens to be Poroshenko's birthday. Whether that's a coincidence or, you know, a, a kind of uh, honorarium to him, if you like, it remains to be seen. But 
I'm not saying that, that he's the guy who did it, but if it is true, then this ambiguity is, makes a lot more sense, right? Keep in mind, before the start of this war, Zelensky was nearly putting Poroshenko in prison on very spurious charges of treason and, and all the rest of it. I mean, they are they were rivals in the political contest for the presidency, but they, they really don't like each other and their factions uh, hate each other. So I if, if that is the case, then I am almost willing to put one hundred dollars on the table that Zelensky would not have allowed it because he doesn't want um, his enemy to, 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 to be a hero and a patriot domestically. Um, so there, there are a lot of question marks surrounding this. But, you know, I am very much of the belief that the thrust of the Washington Post piece is, is correct. I, I do think Ukrainian actors are responsible for this. And I don't think, by the way, that that's going to go down so badly in Ukraine or, frankly, elsewhere. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it would have been different if it had come out very much, you know, within days or weeks of the operation. But now we're coming up on many months. Um, what the Russians have got up to since seems to have eclipsed uh, any kind of diplomatic geopolitical kerfuffle caused by, by the way, a pipeline that was already essentially dead in the water, no pun intended, um, because of the war. And, you know, the one thing I would say is the timing of this disclosure is a little bit unfortunate because it happened on the day that the Kokovka Dam in Kherson uh, blew up or was blown up. And already I'm seeing a lot of people, including Tucker Carlson on his new minted Twitter show, suggest that that was a Ukrainian sabotage operation and not what all the reporting I've done and what has eked out in the last 36 hours strongly suggests, which is that it was a Russian sabotage operation. Well, well the Russians control so, the dam, don't they? The Russians control the dam. The New York Times did a very good, uh, albeit speculative piece querying structural engineers who say that it looks certainly looks to them the more plausible explanation is a bomb that was set off from inside the dam. Well, there's only one one group of people who kind of done that. The Ukrainians came out. Um, the, the, the chairman of their security council, uh, Alexei Danilov, said it was the 205th uh, motorized rifle brigade that was responsible. What's interesting about that is I think in October, that brigade or somebody who was part of it, who has a telegram channel, a social media platform, uh, was essentially saying we have mined and undermined the dam and issuing instructions to the residents of Herson on what to do if the dam should, quote, fail. So you know, there's plenty of there there. And, you know, right now you're in, we're in this sort of abstracted moment of, well, qui bono, why would the Russians do this? Some of their troops got washed away. Their kit has been submerged, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the explanation to my mind is, one, um, if the counteroffensive, which has begun, according to U.S. intelligence assessment. David Ignatius in the Washington Post wrote a column about this. Uh, if it's been successful so far, and, and according to Ignatius, the Ukrainians have managed to claw back between 5 and 10 kilometers of territory all across the contact line. They have yet again defied expectations and the odds given to them by the Americans. Um, if the Russians, and, and here's something I can simply state because I was witnessing it in real time, Russian military bloggers and observers on social media in the last several days have been in a state of utter panic uh, and 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 confusion and paranoia mixed with hubris and bombast and all the rest of it. That indicates to me that they've been getting it handed to them. And what's something that can be done that would, A, 
uh, discombobulate the Ukrainians, B, sap their resources, and C, distract international attention from yet another Russian military failure? Well, a disaster such as flooding hundreds of, if not thousands of, of square miles of, of territory by blowing up a dam. Well within their capability and their ken and willingness to do such a thing. They've done it before. Well, I thank you for joining us, Michael. I must say, you know, I, I hate being in a, a, duped by government propaganda, when it, particularly when it comes from your own government. <laughs> but Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, welcome a... to the club. Look, I've, I've been told no so many times from U.S. sources about things that I know to be true that, um, you know, right. Yeah, it, it is what it is. You, you kind of, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't, you know, I understand the impulse in, in moments of, shall we say, moral clarity, such as this war. Right. I think, broadly speaking, most Americans, most international observers are solidly on Ukraine's side. But, mm-hmm. you know, truth, facts, they matter. And if it doesn't make your side necessarily look great <laughs> in, in the moment, you have to take that into consideration. Yeah, right. But exactly. as I say, I don't think the Ukrainians come off looking so badly in the rearview mirror. I think a lot of people will have said, hats off to them. I mean, they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. fighting, as I say, a war of, of survival, and they have all means at their disposal, and they're going to do what they need to do. I mean, you, you mentioned Budanov. He mm-hmm. said to me in Kiev just a few weeks ago, causing a diplomatic stir, as I've now found out, he says, we've been killing Russians, and we will continue to kill Russians anywhere on the planet so long as they occupy our territory. Uh, it doesn't get more plangently stated than that, you know. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, I really appreciate you joining us here today very much. Sure. All the best. Anytime. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss, who's a senior correspondent at Yahoo News, who's reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies and published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals reported from rebel-held Syria, war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, exposed the Russian intelligence services, ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe, and is the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining whether the merger between the PGA and the Saudi LIV golf tournaments is a way for MBS Mohammed bin Salman to pay off Donald Trump after lavishing his son-in-law Jared Kushner with billions from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. She has been published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East, in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and the Los Angeles Times, and CNN. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the PGA and the Saudi LIV golf tournaments have merged. 
apparently there's been a lot of acrimony and and threats of lawsuits. Uh, the head of the PGA a year ago said there's no way in the world that they would join in with the Saudis because of their appalling human rights uh, record and this would be an insult to the 9-11 families, etc., etc. But all of a sudden, they've merged. And I can't help feeling that a lot of money changed hands. What do you think? Well, I would love to know just how much of a premium Saudi Arabia paid uh, to make the PGA problem go away. It wasn't just a threatened lawsuit. It was an actual lawsuit, an actual lawsuit that already produced some damaging revelations, something that Saudi Arabia and Live Golf tried to keep secret was the fact that, in fact, Live Golf was 93% owned by Saudi Arabia, not just an investor. Um, and uh, clearly, the Saudis have a bottomless pit of money to throw at their problems. And uh, they clearly bought their way out of their problem with PGA Tour, uh, I'm sure paying a very handsome premium to basically take ownership of American golfing. So your organization in many ways was founded, Dawn, Sarah, was it not, because of the murder and dismemberment of the Saudi dissident Ashoji, uh, uh, who was working for the Washington Post. So the idea that a foreign government, according to the CIA, would dismember an American journalist is just so extraordinary and then get away with it. And that's, you know, we're talking about sports washing in the case of the PGA and the Live merger. But this earlier washing that's taken place is still extraordinary and still haunting. And is this just something that we have to accept that there's something about America and about American officials and about Washington in general that they can succumb to an avalanche of Saudi money? Well, um, I don't know that we have to accept it, but I think we have to recognize that the Saudi Arabian government, Mohammed bin Salman, have very clearly understood the weaknesses in the American system, the openness in the American system, uh, the loopholes in American government that uh, have created an opening for uh, a, a dictator, a murderous thug, uh, to buy his way into influence and ownership. You know, there is no law that prohibits a foreign government from owning American golf, just like there's no U.S. law that prohibits a foreign government uh, from buying off U.S. military and government officials when they leave office, uh, covering them up as business transactions and consulting deals. And... Um, this is truly unprecedented in American history. There has never been so much money thrown at American officials, thrown into the American economy by the dictator of a foreign country. And uh, we clearly need some regulatory intervention, uh, not only uh, uh, to avoid supporting uh, and contributing to the abuses of an autocratic thug, but to preserve the integrity uh, of our own democracy. Um, this uh, doesn't only undermine uh, our uh, trust in our uh, democratic officials, our, our trust in American institutions. Um, it's actually a proof of concept, a proof of theory um, that democracies are not better than autocracies and that, in fact, a democracy like ours can be bought by an autocracy like Saudi Arabia. 
Well, obviously, Mohammed bin Salman does not like Biden, and Biden has sent his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, to Saudi Arabia, what, a month ago, and then just a few days ago, Anthony Blinken met with Mohammed bin Salman, and then, in, uh, I think, over this weekend, the Saudis are hosting a massive Chinese trade fair. They've already made a deal with Iran that was brokered by the Chinese. Mohammed Salman is clearly enamored with Putin. He, as much as he hates Biden, he seems to really admire Putin. He's working with him with OPEC to make gasoline more expensive for the American consumer. And in fact, MBS has just said that the Saudis are going to cut supply to jack up the price, making it more expensive. They'll probably do that also as the uh, next year's election approaches. So there's plenty to talk about in that in that regard. But just to finish up on the PGA merger, this is a massive benefit to Donald Trump. And some analysts and intelligence people that I've talked to say it's in fact a conduit to pay off Trump. They've, they've already paid off his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to the tune of $2 billion, although some rumors suggest it may be as high as $5 billion. They paid off Mnuchin, Trump's Secretary of the Treasury, with a, another billion. And Trump was having a hard time uh, getting uh, any of the PGA tournaments at his golf courses, and he's obviously heavily invested in LIV, and it looks like the, they found a way to basically pay off Trump via these golf courses with tournaments that now the PGA wouldn't uh, wouldn't go to his any of his venues. But I can guarantee you that now that the Saudis are involved, uh, all of these prestigious golf tournaments will be at Trump venues. Well, that's right. Um, uh, that's very true. Um, in addition to the fact that LIV Golf was. Uh, paying uh, the Trump Organization, which is Trump's sort of corporate cover, um, to host games. Um, uh, he had been blocked out of some PGA games as a result. That goes away now. And so uh, Saudi Arabia, as the new effective owner of PGA, can direct as much of PGA's business to Donald Trump's golf courses uh, as he wants. I mean, we now have two entities, Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman, using their corporate veils uh, of the public investment fund and PGA golf uh, and Trump's golf uh, business uh, to make payments to each other. And uh, ahead of an upcoming election, um, I do see this as a very dangerous method of campaign corruption and campaign influence. Um, And I think the only question is, is Congress going to do anything about this? Well, the Republicans won't do anything about it uh, because Trump is their front runner, right? And there's no question that MBS wants Trump back. So does Netanyahu, by the way. And Netanyahu would like to make a deal uh, with MBS, although I'm not sure. I mean, apparently the the actual king, not the kid that's about to become king, is unhappy with the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. But uh, I don't think MBS gives a damn about the Palestinians. But uh, if there's an intifada eruption, then it would be pretty hard sell normalizing relations with Israel. But that was on the agenda with Anthony Blinken, along with the Saudi request for U.S. nuclear technology involving Saudi control over the fuel cycle, which would mean that they could get plutonium and build their own bomb. So that's a big ask, isn't it? 
Uh, it is a big ask, and I think you will see Mohammed bin Salman doing his utmost to extract maximal concessions from the Biden administration, not just building a nuclear plant, but also um, giving them the security agreement, giving them security protection, NATO-level security guarantees from the United States in exchange for his normalizing with Israel. That being said, even uh, if he's able to extract all these concessions, um, my guess, and I could be wrong, is that he will hold out on normalization uh, and save that as a reward for Trump rather than letting uh, Blinken or Biden claim it as a achievement of their own administrations. Um, because as you correctly point out, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has no love for the Biden administration, particularly given what President Biden said about him. And no matter how much uh, the Biden administration prostates itself uh, before Mohammed bin Salman, there is no way he is going to uh, treat them uh, as he will treat and has treated uh, President Trump, whose love and admiration he has no doubts about. But this is at the heart of a big problem in U.S. foreign policy, particularly in terms of competing with China. I mean, China, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, all of these countries, led by kleptocrats and autocrats, they can make all kinds of dirty deals. You know, the Chinese are making all kinds of dirty deals around Africa with these dictators, like the crocodile in Zimbabwe, for example, that's where the biggest lithium mines in Africa are. Mm -hmm. Lithium, of course, is key to uh, all of the electric mm -hmm. cars and electronic devices. And they throw the crocodile 30 million <laughs> into his pocket or whatever, and then they just own their lithium. And that's because they can do that. And the U.S., because it's a democracy and believes in the rule of law, they can't make these dirty deals. So there's no question that Mohammed bin Salman is much happier to dealing with Russia, China, and with Donald Trump because he doesn't care about human rights and the rule of law. So is that at the heart of the problem? You dealt with human rights, the Human Rights Watch, Sarah. So is this at the heart of what we're talking about, really? Um, frankly, I don't really see much difference in the approach of the Biden administration versus the Trump administration in terms of Saudi Arabia's uh, human rights problems or human rights record. Uh, certainly, the Biden administration started out making certain promises and commitments about how it would center human rights in its foreign policy. It would uh, recalibrate its relationship with Saudi Arabia. It would end arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, none of those things have come true, and I think that's because for both Republicans and Democrats, for both Republican and Democratic administrations going back many decades, the top priorities in the Middle East are very consistent. They are securing cheap oil and securing Israel uh, and maintaining U.S. hegemony. Um, uh, weapon sales are certainly part and parcel of that and another very major interest for uh, the administrations of both Republicans and Democrats, but ultimately those are the dictates of the Biden administration, and that's why it has been only all too willing to make as many deals with Saudi Arabia uh, as uh, it wants and as it is demanding. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I say, uh, I wish it wasn't the case, 
Um, but you can just read Jake Sullivan's remarks or listen to his speech at the Washington Institute, where he very clearly lays out these priorities uh, for the Biden administration. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty distressing, but I think it's important to understand that the notion of competing with China or Russia uh, in the Middle East is a very problematic approach to the region as a zone of influence, where it's either U.S. hegemony, uh, domination and control with support to dictatorships, or China's going to do it. And that framework, that narrative of seeing the Middle East as this kind of zone of influence and competition for control is one that has been catastrophic for the people of the Middle East, um, and certainly not in the interest of the American people. So is that to say, Sarah, that the U.S. is not in any way constrained to make deals to bribe all of these heads of states and to play the games that uh, dictators like MBS and Xi Jinping and Putin and Erdogan play? Uh, I mean, first of all, the bribery is going in the other direction, right? This is about Saudi Arabia bribing Mm -hmm. its way into American influence. Um, This is about Saudi Arabia using its billions in weapons purchases uh, to smooth out any bumps in its relationship uh, with a particular administration. And, uh, you know, I think that we have to update our understanding of this is not about what demands the United States is going to be making on Saudi Arabia. Uh, We have long sort of put aside the notion of making demands on Saudi Arabia. Um, This is about the extent to which Saudi Arabia is going to use its money, its influence, its power uh, to control political outcomes, uh, to control decisions by U.S. lawmakers. So just in closing, though, is that to say then that the U.S. commitment to human rights and the rule of law doesn't extend very far when you get into the real politic of uh, Saudi Arabia with, with all of its oil and all of its money, which it uses to bribe U.S. officials. Yes, absolutely. And of course, Saudi Arabia is not alone in that regard. Um, uh, if you look at America's relationships with abusive apartheid governments throughout the Middle East and North Africa, um, you will see that uh, it is you know, a, a very glaring Uh, exception to all of America's human rights rhetoric, all of America's rhetoric about democracy being a key pillar of the survival of the world and so forth. Um, All of those uh, uh, claims of values are flushed down the toilet when it comes to uh, our uh, policies uh, and actions in the Middle East. So we talk a good game, but at the end of the day, we succumb to the lure of free money from a Saudi family that sitting on this massive amount of wealth and have one of the most repressive reactionary governments in the world and have spread the most toxic form of religious austerity and which has led to Boko Haram, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you name it. Well, I mean, and that's why what the acquisition of PGA and the American Gulf should underline uh, to everyone who's paying attention to this is that what's at risk now isn't just the human rights of the Saudi people and the human rights of the Yemeni people who are being trampled 
uh, by uh, uh, the Saudi Arabian dictatorship. It's our own democracy here in the United States that is being corrupted and undermined uh, by the dictator of Saudi Arabia. And if you care nothing about uh, the human beings in the Middle East, at the very least, I hope people will care a little bit more about preserving the integrity of our own democracy um, by taking a close, hard look of what this influence peddling uh, is amounting to and what its costs are here in the United States. Sarah Lee Whitson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. She was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. And she has been published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East, in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Los Angeles Times and CNN. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Supreme Court's shadow docket where 99% of the decisions take place in unseen, unsigned and unexplained cases, with many aligning with Republican political priorities. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Vladek, who holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He's argued over a dozen cases before the United States Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court and has testified before numerous congressional committees and executive branch agencies. And his latest book is a New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Vladek. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And your book points out the the alarming fact that almost 99% of the Supreme Court's decisions take place on the shadow docket, which means they're not subject to the high standards and procedures of the court. And uh, you describe them as being unseen, unsigned, and almost always unexplained. And this has led to the court's new conservative majority using this procedure, uh, this obscure procedure, to shift American jurisprudence to the right. But just to establish a broader context, Senator Whitehouse and others have pointed out that there has been, to some extent, a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court and that one person, Leonard Leo, has managed to basically stack the court and and the federal bench using dark money from plutocrats and others. So how does your new book fit into that broader pattern, as, as alarming as that is in itself? Yeah, I mean, the you know the book is trying to tell Ian a more institutionally driven story, where you know I'm trying to push all of us to look at the court more holistically, not just as the sum total of you know the 60 or 65 big decisions the court hands down through its merits docket every year, not just as you know the sum total of 
the you know current composition of the court, um, but rather you know to sort of to look at how the court is behaving institutionally across all of its decision making, because I, I think part of the story here is that when the court has been healthier um, institutionally in in its prior moments and prior periods of its history, whether it's had a liberal majority or a conservative majority. Um, we've had fewer of these kinds of concerns about the court's legitimacy, about the court being taken over by, you know, insidious forces on one side of the political spectrum. And I think that's that's a story, Ian, not about personality. It's a story about institutional relationships, um, which may be less sexy um, and less uh, uh, sort of easy to tell, but I think is no less important. And it's a big part of why I set out to write this book in this way at this particular moment. Well, it's an extraordinary fact, is it not, that this procedure, this shadow docket procedure, has been used sparingly and with extreme caution in history. But now, over the last three terms alone, from 2019 to 2022, the Supreme Court granted emergency relief on more than 60 cases, overturning lower court decisions. And, of course, again, these happen without explanation and without attribution. And they cover incredibly important areas of public life, abortion, immigration, voting rights, death penalty, religious practices, etc. And and most of these decisions appear to align closely with the Republican political priorities and the legal context. I mean, that's exactly right. And I guess, you know, part of what I was hoping to show in the book is that this is a new development. Um, You know, Justice Samuel Alito has tried to defend the court's behavior, both in speeches and in some of his separate opinions, by suggesting that this is nothing new under the sun, that the courts always had a mechanism for dealing with what we call emergency applications, you know, where someone's asking the court to intervene quickly and earlier in a case than it normally would. And, you know, Ian, there's sort of, there's a kernel of truth in the notion that the court has always had this power, but the shift is a really important one because you know, for most of the last generation, I mean, since the early 1980s, the court really only used this authority almost predominantly in 11th hour death penalty cases where, you know, you had a death row prisoner who was trying to block his execution while he had legal claims to be resolved. Um, or you had a, you know, you had a state trying to unblock an execution. And the real shift starting in the mid 2010s that just gets kicked into hyperdrive during the Trump administration is all of a sudden the Supreme Court is using this procedure not just for death penalty cases, but for, you know, nationwide immigration policies, for uh, congressional redistricting, for state COVID mitigation measures. And so what that means is that all of a sudden rulings that, you know, by tradition are unsigned and unexplained are having far, far greater effects on the ground. Um, than we'd ever seen before in a context in which, because they're not explained, no one can really say why the court did what it did. And no one can hold the court's feet to the fire when, you know, in the next case that looks the same, the court comes out differently. You mentioned Alito, and of course, he attacked you and called you out by name and said, quote, the catchy and sinister term shadow doctor has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its way. 
This portrayal feeds the unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage its independent institutions. And the truth of the matter is, it's the activities and the actions of this court that damaged its institutional standing, and it's particularly its respect uh, that the broad public holds for it, which is at an all-time low. So it seems that Alito is really avoiding the main question is, you know, which is is what the Supreme Court is doing that's causing the problem and damaging its reputation, not the fact that people like you are pointing out the abuse of this mechanism. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the titles, I mean, the, the, the term is certainly evocative. Um, but, you know, I would be making the same arguments and the same criticisms even if we called it the banana docket, um, right, or or the orders docket, or whatever you want to call it, the the problem is not the name. The problem is that what's actually happening um, is a pattern of behavior that is radically inconsistent with what the court had done in the past. That is inconsistent even within these cases, um, by you know by reference to any coherent underlying neutral legal principle. And that really appears to be just the justices, you know, voting up or down on policies based on their partisan political preferences in ways that, you know, reinforce the perception that the court is acting as a political branch and not as a judicial one. Well, a good example, which you point out in in your book, Stephen Vladek, The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic is that when the the court Supreme Court refused to block the Texas Heartbeat Act uh, SB8, and this happened before they overturned Roe v. Wade and Casey, but in effect, using the shadow docket, uh, they were able to make it all but impossible to get an abortion in Texas, the nation's second largest state. Exactly right. And, you know, I think what was so interesting and important and also Ian galling um, about the Supreme Court's refusal to block the Texas abortion ban on the shadow docket isn't just that the court did that. It was that that ruling came at the end of a 10-month period where in other contexts, the justices had intervened over and over and over again to block controversial state laws where the controversy was in the other direction, where you had you know, COVID mitigation measures in New York or California or, you know, New Jersey or Colorado. And, you know, litigants were bringing novel religious liberty-based objections to these COVID mitigation policies. And the court was going out of its way to block those policies very early in the litigation, um, even when there were procedural problems with the lawsuits, even when there were obstacles to relief. Ian, for the same five justices who regularly did that in order to vindicate a new view of religious liberty, to turn around and say, oh, our hands are tied when it comes to protecting what was at least then the existing right to abortion, really, I think, drove home the problem. And, you know, it was the first time that the majority was called out by one of the dissenting justices specifically for abusing the shadow docket. Justice Kagan was at pains to criticize the abuse um, in her dissent. And Ian, it really, I think, helped to precipitate this public backlash um, in the fall of 2021, because I think the Texas abortion case was the first time, you know, millions of Americans had this very direct, tangible evidence of the immediate impact of one of these unsigned, unexplained rulings 
you know, impact that we don't usually see when it's about a execution or even immigration policy. And so I think that's, you know, that had a lot to do with putting this behavior on the public radar and in turn with, you know, I think generating this, this, I think, growing consensus that this is not how the court ought to behave. But this idea that criticizing the court is the problem and, and that's causing the lack of public faith in it as opposed to the actions of the court is a, you know, an extremely convenient way to dodge responsibility. But it does seem in Alito's case that he's very thin-skinned. And I recall, of course, at the time of Citizens United, shortly thereafter, at the joint session of Congress at which President Obama spoke, he said, you know, that this ruling will have devastating effects and will, will allow foreign money to pour into our elections, which is what happened in 2016 with Russian, Saudi and uh, Gulf money pouring in. But at the time when Obama said that before a live television audience of millions, the camera cut to Alito, who mouthed, not true. So this leads me to wonder whether... Some of these justices are inhabiting an alternative universe because it is so true what the consequences of Citizens United have been. And it's also true in the case of when Chief Justice Roberts overturned Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. He said he, we no longer needed it because there was no more racial prejudice in the South. Well, that's clearly not true. So is there a problem here? I mean, can you explain it as a legal scholar, whether their thinking is grounded in reality? And I think there are lots of ways in which the, the thinking is not grounded in reality, or at least not grounded in the reality, Ian, that, that you and I, and I suspect most of the folks listening to us, um, occupy. Um, I, I would say, though, I would differentiate, perhaps controversially, between the court getting you know, the merits cases wrong. Um, which, frankly, it has done for as long as it has existed. I mean, the you know there there's a much longer history of bad Supreme Court decisions than good ones, um, and I don't think that's an accident. Um, versus, right, what I think is novel about the moment we're in, and you know, to me, the novelty of this moment is not that the court has a majority of justices who have a particularly dogmatic view of constitutional interpretation or a particularly craven view um, of the administrative state, right? It's that this is a court that has no real check on it, that is not accountable to us, to the political branches, um, and to a degree that we've never seen before, where, you know, even in its prior moments of unpopular counter-majoritarian decision-making, the court remains subject to all kinds of levers and checks from Congress that for various reasons, Congress has stopped enforcing and stopped pulling. And I think that's, you know, the the disease that the book is about and that, you know, some of these contemporary ethics kerfuffles are about is a broader disease about congressional disengagement with the court, far more than it's about the specific ideological commitments of the current majority. So what are the fixes, if indeed they're possible? I mean, Congress has the power to prescribe standards that justices would follow in granting emergency relief. But given the narrow divisions, what's the likelihood of Congress taking authority away from the Supreme Court? Because it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court is accruing enormous amount of power to itself 
it is basically placing itself above government expertise in making decisions about public health, about health and safety, workplace safety, uh, whether or not you can regulate clean air and clean water, etc. So is this time for the Congress to basically check the, the growing power of the Supreme Court in terms of separations of powers? I mean, I, I think that would be great. I think that has some pretty serious political obstacles um, that would get in the way. But, you know, Ian, this is part of why I think it's so important for us to try to get out of the habit of seeing, you know, the only opportunities for Congress um, in terms of how Congress can, you know, sort of limit the court's power. Um, I think there are opportunities that are unrelated to cabining the power of the current conservative majority um, that would also be quite salutary from the perspective of restoring a healthier balance between the branches. You know, Congress, Ian, for the better part of 150 years, exercised pretty significant control over which cases the justices hear. You know, Congress, even as late as 1988, still controlled a lot of the court's docket. I think Congress could go back to that and to, you know, exercising more control over what the justices actually do. Um, Congress has control over the court's budget. You know, Congress has control over um, the court's, you know, sort of uh, standards of review, as you say. I mean, I guess, Ian, there are a lot of different ways Congress could assert even a modicum of institutional authority over the court that don't require it to take power away from the court. And I think, you know, that's that might be a sort of a strange and counterintuitive point. But I think it's also, you know, the it gets at what the real problem is, which is that you could have a court with a six conservative justice majority that was a heck of a lot more accountable than the current court is. And maybe a lot of these merits decisions still come out the same, but at least you'd have a court that was behaving as an institution in ways that were healthier. Um, that won't placate progressives. I mean, I think that, you know, there are plenty of progressives who wouldn't be mollified by that, who want to, you know, diminish the power of the current court by any means necessary. And I understand that position. I just, that's not my position. You know, to me, part of the story here is restoring a healthier institutional relationship, no matter who, right, has a majority on the current court. Well, but just in closing, I mean, uh, there's a concern, and it may not entirely be just uh, coming from progressives and liberals, that this current court, with this supermajority of conservatives, almost all of whom, or at least most of whom, have been handpicked by Leonard Leo, are essentially, you know, Republican political operatives in robes. And is there any way for that to be disproved? Um, the best way to disprove it would be for them to, you know, not keep acting in ways that reinforce it. Um, the second best way to disprove it is to, you know, get back to a point which is where we were for a pretty significant period of American history, where, you know, no matter what the impulses of the justices might be, um, there are institutional reasons why they are constrained to not just follow their impulses in every single case. You know, the Ian, I think folks would have a really hard time naming justices from before the recent period because you know, there wasn't quite the same amount of individualization. There wasn't quite the same amount of, you know, sort of personal agenda pushing um, in the earlier decades of the court. And I think part of that story is because, you know, everyone on the court was at least to some degree an institutionalist. 
And I think it says a lot about where we are today that if you ask folks who among the nine current justices ever votes in ways that are, you know, prioritizing their institutional commitments over their personal preferences, the only answer you'd ever hear is John Roberts. Um, and even then, you know, not necessarily consistently. And, you know, to me, the question is, how do we get back to a point where whoever the justices are, they're always feeling at least some pressure to vote and to rule and to act in ways that are the best for the institution and not just for their own agenda. And that story has to start with, you know, more public awareness of the court as an entire institution, more nuance in public discussions of the decision making of the court and more engagement by the political branches in explaining why, you know, a healthy separation of powers is actually critical to the success of the court and to the health of our constitutional republic um, and why, you know, judicial independence and judicial accountability are not mutually exclusive. And so, you know, part of why I wrote this book is because that's the conversation I think we ought to be having at least as much as we're having a conversation about the particular, you know, financial irregularities of individual justices or the particular flaws of individual merits rulings coming out of the Supreme Court. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it, uh, Stephen Vladek. Thanks for having me, Ian. This is a treat. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Vladek, who holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He's argued over a dozen cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court and has testified before numerous congressional committees. And his latest book is a New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.